Good morning, everyone. Today we are going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, for if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today, uh, for the assembly of your people here at CBC, for the rich blessing it is for all of us to worship you together, uh, to sing uh, praise to you, Lord, and uh, see each other's smiling faces uh, and know that these are the people with whom we will share eternity. Lord, I pray that we would be governed, Lord, um, by love in our relationships with one another, that we would not seek our own, uh, but seek the things that are above, Lord, uh, to glorify you and to do honor to our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you would bless the teaching this morning, Lord, that it would be greatly edifying and encouraging, Lord, um, and that perhaps if there are those of us who are struggling with um, some aspect of showing this love to another in their life, Lord, that you would bring that to their attention this morning, um, that they might uh, grow and cease being a stumbling block to their brother or sister um, who struggles with, with something like this, Lord. In your name I pray all of these things. Amen. Good morning. We appreciate your patience as we took quite a hiatus from First Corinthians, but we're back. Uh, five chapters after the one that we're considering this morning in chapter 13 of this same epistle, Paul says to the Corinthians, First Corinthians 13, 2, if, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. What would we expect the last part of that verse to say? Uh, if you're anything like me, <laughs> you'd expect it to say, the verse to say, if, if I know all knowledge 
and I have all faith, but do not have love, I won't be as useful to God as I should be, because love is really important. But that's not what Paul says. He says, if I possess all knowledge and have all faith, but do not have love, I am nothing. I'm not merely less effective or less useful than I should be. I am ineffective and useless. Our last time together in 1 Corinthians, we camped out for a while on a big picture principle in the first three verses of chapter 8. A principle that will be foundational to everything that Paul is going to say all the way through chapter 14. And that principle is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If you and I know what God says, but we don't love as God loves, our knowledge is worse than useless. It actually tears down what God commands us to build up. Now think about that for a moment. For Bible-believing Christians like most of us in this room, what could be more important than knowing what God has revealed to mankind in His Word, believing it, trusting in it, and that marvelous word of the cross that gives life to the dead? God's answer is that without love, our knowledge of Him just makes us arrogant. And that arrogance makes both our knowledge and our faith of no value for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The absence of love in the exercise of knowledge is not some peripheral problem that affected only a few believers in first century Corinth. It is a problem that has crippled the effectiveness of countless Christians in every age of the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul addresses it a number of times in his letters. It's not some unusual propensity to arrogance that makes a believer puffed up because of his or her knowledge about God. It is an exceedingly common sin among Christians. It's a sin that disqualifies and nullifies our efforts to be useful to God because it works against God's purposes. It tears down what God has commissioned us to build up. This morning, we're going to see how Paul applies this powerful exhortation to the matter that he introduced at the very beginning of the chapter. At the beginning of verse 1, Paul said, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. What a statement. We know that we all have knowledge. What knowledge? Well, he tells us in verses 4 through 6, and I believe he's I believe he's echoing what has been presented to him in a letter from the Corinthians to Paul, the, the leadership of the Corinthian church, to Paul, and he's affirming it. He's saying, you got this part right. Verses 4 through 6, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven 
or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us <laughs> there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This is a biblically correct and entirely accurate declaration. In fact, uh, it's a marvelous affirmation of the oneness of God. Verse 6 is a New Testament reframing of the Old Testament declaration that many Jews throughout the ages have considered the most foundational declaration in the entire revelation that God has given to mankind. And they call it the Shema. And the word Shema is Hebrew for hear. Yes, Steve knows it. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And the, and the, the word there is Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Paul expands here on that ancient declaration to draw attention to the deity of Jesus. He says in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 8, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. All of, all of the scriptures present Jesus as the word of God, by whom, through whom all things were created, for whom all things were created. Read first chapter of John, read Colossians 1. The Corinthian saints knew and believed and proclaimed this foundational truth about God. There is one God. And Paul commended them for doing so. Now the other declaration of the Corinthians that Paul commends here is in verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. The leaders of the Corinthian church rightly understood that because there is actually just one God, idol worship, I-D-O-L, is actually idol worship, I-D-L-E. I know I said that last time. Paul commends them for this understanding as far as it goes. But he's quick to point out that even though the knowledge expressed in these wonderful declarations is perfectly accurate that it is also ins insufficient. It's accurate, but it's insufficient. There were a couple of critically important things missing from the Corinthians' understanding <laughs> that needed to radically change their practice if, if they would humbly hear and embrace those things. Now, since you and I don't have a reference point in our culture for the practice of eating food sacrificed to idols, I need to take a moment to recap some things I touched on last time about what was going on in Corinth in Paul's day. There were many different gods worshipped in first century Corinth from many different pagan traditions. There were Greek gods and Roman gods and Egyptian gods and regional gods, local gods, and, and one of the most 
salient things that we know about Corinth is that the public life of the city of Corinth revolved around the worship of these idols. The great social events that brought the people in Corinth together were not state fairs or art and music festivals. They were pagan sacrificial feasts. And they went on, these parties for false gods went on in different places in the city throughout the year. There was always some place to go to participate in one of these. And the temples to these false gods were the public gathering places. From a purely logistical point of view, the, the pagan temples were the best equipped gathering places available in the city. Private citizens even rented them for things like big wedding receptions. After all, they were built with the intention of accommodating a lot of people for meals. The standard operating procedure for official pagan feasts, as well as for any other event held at any of the pagan temples, was for all of the animals that were to be consumed as food, along with the grain and the wine, to first be offered up as a sacrifice by the pagan priests to whichever god or gods was associated with that particular temple. And there was always, like, like the church potlucks, there was always an abundance of food, more than was actually consumed at the event. From that excess of food, the priests in those pagan temples would keep whatever they needed for their own families, and then they would sell the rest of the unconsumed food, especially the most valuable food, which was the meat. And they would sell them to the same public markets that served everybody in Corinth. So if you were a Christian and you went to buy food, especially meat, you had no way of knowing whether that food that you bought in the market had or had not been ceremonially offered up to idols, to false gods. Paul will have some intriguing and even surprising things to say about that scenario in chapter 10 when he addresses this issue of food that was bought in the public markets in Corinth. Food that, in other words, food that the saints were not sure had been offered up to idols. But here in chapter, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Here in chapter 8, Paul's ad addressing a different scenario. He's talking about food that the saints knew had been sacrificed to idols. Verse 10 sets up the scenario. He says, for if... Christian, if someone sees you who have no knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? I hope it's clear by now that in first century Corinth, if you were, quote, dining at an idol's temple, there was no question about whether the food you were eating had been offered up to that idol. It, that was... A foregone conclusion. Some of the Corinthian believers, evidently including the elders in the church at Corinth, to whose letter Paul responds at various points in this, in this epistle, some of the Corinthian believers were attending the pagan sacrificial feasts and they were eating the food that was served at those feasts. 
And their confident justification for doing so was, we know what we all know, that idols are fake gods, and that we, what we eat or don't eat will not commend us to the one real God. So nobody can tell us that it's wrong for us to stuff our faces at a pagan sacrificial feast. And guys, if, if the what we know statements in this passage actually covered all the bases that need to be considered, their confidence might have been justified. But the whole point of this chapter is that the knowledge that the Corinthians possessed, though it was accurate as far as it went, did not cover every base that they needed to consider. It's actually not what you know, but who knows you that makes you godly. To the extent that the Corinthians' knowledge was accurate, it nonetheless completely missed the one thing that would have made their practice, their behavior, godly. And that one thing is humble, God-sourced love. When I say God-sourced, I mean the love that comes to us from God, the love that produces our love for God, and that overflows to our fellow saints and to lost men and women and children. Listen again to verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 8 that we looked at last time. Verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Note the connection between, <laughs> between what you don't know and what fills, that, what fills up that void, that you are known by God. What does it mean if anyone loves God, he is known by him? Well, the last part actually comes first. He is known by him. The only reason that you and I know God and love God is because God knew us and loved us first. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4-6 through 6 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And then it says, in love. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And the beloved is Christ in that context. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. All this started with God choosing to love us choosing to make us the object of his affection and his, his redeeming love. What sanctifies the knowledge about God that you and I carry around in our heads, what makes that knowledge useful and mighty for God's eternal purposes is the love of God, his love for us and the love that that love produces in us for him and for others. Apart from that God-sourced love, your knowledge and my knowledge, no matter how accurate it is, it tears down what God commands us to build up. That's what knowledge without love does. That's not 
an unusual thing about knowledge without love. That is a universal thing about knowledge without love. Knowledge without love makes arrogant and tears down. The problem was not that these Corinthian saints were bent on getting every other believer to do exactly what they did. It was that they just didn't care what effect their actions had on anyone other than themselves. In verse 7, right after affirming that idols are fake gods and that there's no God but one, Paul says, however, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. In other words, as if that idol existed. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, I do not believe Paul is saying that a person can worship false gods and be a Christian. I believe he's simply saying that for many, many who were part of the first generation of Christians in Corinth, this pagan, pagan idol-obsessed city, before they had come to faith in Jesus, the gods to whom all that food was now being offered up had been the very gods that they had long feared. The gods they believed had controlled their well-being and their destinies. For those who had been saved, those Christians who'd been saved out of generations of pagan worship to see their brothers and sisters in Christ sitting down with pagans and enjoying all the sights and sounds and smells and tastes that pervaded the, that pagan worship and eating the food that had been offered up as a sacrifice to those pagan gods, that, that circumstance stirred up thoughts and feelings and temptations that were very unsettling to them and that had dangerous potential to hinder their walk with Christ. But the leaders in the church at Corinth had convinced themselves based on what they rightly knew about the oneness of God that for any Christian to worry about such things just proved that he was ignorant of the truth and ignorant of the freedoms that belong to Christians. They convinced themselves that they had no reason to make any concession at all to that ignorance. No reason to limit their own freedom in any way to accommodate such an immature understanding of God. And, and indeed, it seems that they, they were convinced that to make such an accommodation would be to deny their own accurate knowledge. To endorse bad theology. Any of this sound familiar? So they attended the pagan sacrificial feast right along with all the pagans. They ate and drank and they enjoyed the party. And if some new or poorly informed Christian who had come out of generations of idol worship was offended or tempted when he saw those liberty-loving brothers chowing down with the pagans, that was that immature Christian's problem. That Christian just needed to get in the Word more. To get to know the truth about Christian liberty. If he was offended, God would surely use that offense to sort him out. By participating in the feasts at the pagan temples, those who saw themselves as mature, liberty-loving Christians believed that they were actually doing that immature, guilt-trip Christian a big favor. 
But that, beloved, is not at all how Paul assesses the behavior of the leaders of the church in Corinth. Not at all. Yes, they had accurate knowledge as far as that knowledge went. But there were a couple of indispensable things that they were missing. (laughs) Not just important things, indispensable things. The first is that accurate knowledge can be dangerously incomplete. Accurate knowledge can be dangerously incomplete. And the second is that knowledge without love tears down what God intends to build up. First, accurate knowledge can can be dangerously incomplete. That first caveat actually shows up a couple of chapters later in this letter, but I'd be remiss if I didn't raise it here. In chapter 10, Paul will make it very clear that even though the Corinthian saints were correct in their knowledge that idols are fake gods and thus are no real threat to anyone, what they failed miserably to understand was that the pagan sacrificial feasts were, in reality, a playground for demons. And demons are very, very real. In 1 Corinthians 10.14, Paul says to these same saints, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. A few verses later, he says, what do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No! But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And then in that same chapter, just one chapter before he rebukes the Corinthians for using the Lord's table as an opportunity to indulge in self-serving gluttony and drunkenness, Paul says to them, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? This was actually not new information. 1,500 years earlier, in Deuteronomy 32, God indicted the Israelites for embracing the idolatrous practices of the Egyptians and of the, the pagan nations that surrounded them during their time in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, God said of Israel, they made him, God, jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. And then listen to verse 17. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread. So in both testaments of the Bible, God declares that men's worship of man-made gods is pervaded by the activity of Satan and of the angels that Satan seduced long ago to rebel against God. We'll consider this connection between demons and food sacrifice to idols in more depth when we actually get to chapter 10, but but it's important for us to understand at this point that in this letter, 
Even though Paul affirms the Corinthians' right theology about the oneness of God and their correct assertion that food does not touch our righteous standing before God, he does not endorse their practice of eating food sacrificed to idols. In fact, he prohibits it. I should also point out, this came up in our Wednesday discussion, that in Acts 15, the exhortation of the Jerusalem Council to all the churches in the name of the Holy Spirit included a prohibition against eating things sacrificed to idols. That prohibition is still in effect. The point we must not miss here is that even accurate knowledge can be dangerously incomplete. But the point that Paul zeroes in on in chapter 8 throughout the 13 verses of chapter 8 is the same one he's been talking about since the first verse of that chapter. Knowledge without love tears down what God intends to build up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, Paul affirms the Corinthian understanding, as I said, that food will not come in this to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do. But then he immediately, in the very next verse, adds the following. But take care, lest this liberty of yours not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul is taking the reader right back to verse 1 where he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It is universally true that, that knowledge without love makes arrogant. So if you have knowledge, you're going to have a problem with arrogance. It's also universally true that love builds up. The indispensable corrective to the arrogant exercise of knowledge to which we are all prone is the love of God given to us and overflowing from us to others. Even to the extent that our knowledge of our liberty in Christ is spot on, we must not practice that liberty in a manner that violates love for our fellow saints or for anyone else. If we do, we will sin against our brothers and sisters every time. We tend to define the word weak in passages like this one and in Romans 14 as uh, immature. We define weak as immature, and that's a reasonable definition up to a point. A, a Christian with a mature, biblically informed understanding of God's grace in Jesus Christ will not treat righteousness in the eyes of God as if it's dependent on doing one thing and not doing another. Uh, in Colossians 2, Paul says the do not touch, do not taste, you know, do not eat 
observe certain days, don't observe others. He says those things have the appearance of true religion, but are in fact of no value against fleshly indulgence. So a mature Christian gets that. A mature Christian knows that our, our righteous standing in the eyes of God is grounded only in what Jesus did for us at the cross that we could never do for ourselves. But where we mess things up <laughs> is when we assume that the other category of Christian in these passages, the one that's not the weak Christian, is therefore the mature Christian. Beloved, a Christian can possess an excellent, very well-informed grasp of biblical truth, including the truth of the, of the grace of God, and still be unloving. And an unloving Christian is anything but a mature Christian. When one category of Christian in passages like 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 is called weak, <laughs> the other category of Christian, the one called strong, is the one who better understands the liberty of the believer in the light of God's grace, who understands that godliness is not about living within narrow boundaries of behavior and having lots of rules to keep. But that does not mean that that Christian is a mature child of God whose life and behavior rightly honors Christ. It means he has good knowledge. The leaders in the church at Corinth who had written to Paul knew, again, that a right standing in the eyes of God was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by keeping the right set of rules, but it is equally clear that they were not mature and godly in their exercise of that knowledge or of the liberty that belonged to them, that actually belonged to them as children of God. They knew what was lawful, but they had an immature grasp of what was profitable. What is, it, what is it that makes that which is lawful in the eyes of God profitable in the hands of God? Godly love. When does the exercise of your freedom in the Lord become sin? When it violates self-denying love for others. This fits right in with the theme of Jesus coming not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have a strong, we all have a strong tendency to flip the first two letters of the word empathy. We expect everyone else's responses to things and assessment of things to match up with ours. We shoehorn everyone else into our shoes instead of making a genuine effort to spend some time in theirs. We think if my conscience is fine with this, <laughs> why should I be worried about your conscience? If you think it's just too complicated and burdensome to have to worry about what might offend or tempt another believer, you would do well to remember, you and I would do, do well to remember that God says unity in the body of Christ is hard work. Ephesians 4 Verses 1 through 3, Therefore I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, that means working hard, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Beloved, unity is hard work. But when that hard work is fueled and driven by godly love, it's not the difficulty of the work that gets your attention. It's your love for God and for your fellow saints that commands your attention. The incomparable love of God in Jesus Christ makes the difficulty of denying yourself to serve others and the complications of figuring out how to serve others when they're hard to serve a joyful labor of love. How do we who live in 21st century America violate the rule of life that Paul sets before us here? Well, we don't violate it by eating food sacrificed to idols. At least I don't. I don't think I've come across any of that. <laughs> One of the problems with trying to answer that question, how do we violate this principle, is if I give you specific examples, I run the risk of doing the very thing that Paul exhorts against in this passage. If I say we have the liberty to do X, and some of you came here today absolutely convinced based on what you see in Scripture that we don't have that liberty, I don't want to be the one that tempts you to violate your conscience before God. The other problem with providing specific examples is that it tends to, to limit your thinking. You say, okay, well, I haven't done that, and I haven't done that, and I haven't done that, so I'm good. But I'll venture for just a moment to step in where angels fear to tread. The first scenario is pretty safe. If you invite a new believer who came to faith out of a Muslim background or an Orthodox Jewish background to your house for dinner and you serve them pork chops because that's your favorite meat and they're supposed to be okay with it now that they're Christians, you're probably violating this principle. This one's a little harder. If you invite a fourth-generation Southern Baptist family over for dinner and serve wine with the meal because you like wine and they're supposed to be okay with it now that they're Christians, but you don't know what their convictions actually are about alcohol consumption, you're probably violating this principle. If you can listen to classic rock without, without it stirring up temptations in you to indulge in the drug use that is very often referenced in classic rock songs, you probably shouldn't assume that it is therefore fine to crank up Purple Haze at the next church picnic on your <laughs> Bluetooth boombox. If you're convinced that you have the liberty in Christ to vote for a candidate for public office that you know doesn't check many of the preferred boxes for acceptance by lots of your evangelical Christian friends, you might want to consider whether self-denying love for the brethren means you forego putting that candidate's campaign sign in your front yard when you're scheduled to host the next ministry group meeting. Beloved, you and I need to be prayerfully creative when it comes to thinking about this. God commands us to protect the conscience of our brother and sister in Christ. Not to mess with their conscience, but to protect it. God commands us to deny ourselves 
in order to build up the body of Christ, not to demand the exercise of our liberties in Christ. It's not a liberty if you violate love doing it. It's a sin. Dear Father, we confess that we are prone to use our knowledge of your word arrogantly in our dealings with one another and with the world. We ask for and thank you for the faithful work of your Holy Spirit to humble us, to make us loving in the exercise of that knowledge. Dear Father, above all all else, teach us to love you, the Lord our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and teach us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love one another as you have loved us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen.